Well, it is, it's great to be back uh, in this series uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, this is a, a series which both shows how Christ fulfills the Old Testament, but also how the Old Testament prefigures Christ coming into the world. Um, I found as a pastor that many people uh, were intimidated by the Old Testament, and I have given you an idea that is just one possible solution as a way to introduce your, your folks to the Old Testament is to introduce them to the four key figures of the Old Testament, which are by far, by a, exponentially far, the four most quoted figures in the Old Testament, Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. And so if we have those four figures kind of laid out in a structure, if you understand those four figures, it, it creates a wonderful repository for approaching the New Testament. It gives them kind of a spine to kind of understand the Old Testament. It's a great start, at least, in introducing someone to the Old Testament. What we have seen, and this is for our new students here, what we've seen is that we actually relate, uh, Christians are asked to relate to each of these four figures differently. And so we actually understand redemption through the lens of Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David, and only collectively they give us a full understanding of who Christ is and the fullness and splendor of Christ as the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes. So Adam we relate to racially as the head of the human race. Abraham we relate to redemptively. Moses we relate to legally. And David we relate to royally. And so these are very important lenses through which we understand Christ who eventually comes to us and fulfills all of this as second Adam prophet, priest, king, new lawgiver, and also suffering servant, which we'll add as well. We uh, spent several weeks on, uh, on Adam and on the fall, and we saw that in the, uh, the very birth of, of humanity in the Garden of Eden, that Adam <clears throat> took the, the fruit. <clears throat> we know there's nothing inherently evil about a fruit, so this becomes a symbolic act because by the, the forbidden not to eat of this fruit, by taking the fruit, it then creates a possibility of something dramatic happening. So the whole garden of Eden and the, the fruit and the eating of it becomes essentially what I called an anti-sacrament. Because if a sacrament is the outward sign of an inward and spiritual grace, this is clearly an outward sign of an inward and spiritual rebellion. And so Adam and Eve, by taking the fruit and eating it, they enter into, you might say, the fellowship of the rebellion. And because, unfortunately, we are all in the loins of Adam when he sinned, we all sinned with him, and therefore the whole human race is cast into sin, and there's no way any human can save us. It's a pretty bleak moment. That's why they call it the fall, usually capital F, fall. It's like a bad day in the history of humanity to say the least. So um, in, this, in this act, uh, God immediately begins to build uh, a response to that, Genesis 3.15 forward. So the plan of redemption slowly begins to un unfold, and one of them, of course, is that how will Christ come? In fact, he is the only one eligible to come as the second Adam. So Christ comes in. The, remember, the motto of the rebellion was, not your will, but mine be done. And all this unfolds in the first Garden of Eden. Christ comes in the second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that moment, Christ says, not my will, but thine be done. 
And so Christ reverses the curse. Christ comes a second Adam, and wherever Adam disobeyed, this new Adam obeyed. And now we have, of course, these two great headships of the human race, Adam and Christ, under which all of humanity will be gathering. So we, we've been unfolding that sort of weeks. Then we went to Abraham, and we focused particularly on the covenant with Abraham, both Genesis 12, where the covenant is, where he's called, and later with the actual cutting of the covenant in Genesis 15. But we saw the main point of the call of Abraham was to recognize the scope of redemption. We spent quite a bit of time on this, that it was not simply a, you know, a, a restoration of the Jewish race or the building of the Jewish people, uh, but it's actually, again, back to Adam. This is about the restoration of the whole human race. So he promises in the Jewish covenant, in your seed all nations will be blessed. And this becomes this, the kind of seminal phrase which gets picked up through the great commissions and all of the great texts in the New Testament, Pantatai Ethne, all the nations, and becomes, of course, the foundation stone of the scope of redemption for all the peoples of the earth. Well, we find in today's text illustrates this, that not only is the plan of redemption unfolding from Genesis 3 forward, but also the fall continues to unfold. And we find, as we read through Genesis, that not only is it personal, the personal guilt of Adam and Eve as they sinned and entered into the rebellion, we see that eventually becomes, clearly it's social as well, it's interpersonal as well. You have the first murder in Genesis chapter 4. But then we get to Genesis 14, we are seeing all of the nations, all these nations fighting each other. And the five nations uh, fighting the four nations, and that's the context of Genesis 15, though we didn't read all of that, because I was merciful uh, to you, because the, the names there are really astounding. Um, so, okay, but it's a pretty remarkable facet, but it shows that, that even the nations are now in conflict, and the text actually begins with these five nations uh, at war against four nations, and eventually the four nations uh, beat the five nations. I think actually that this national, national tribal kind of warfare is probably not that unusual in the ancient world at this time, but it's mentioned in particular because of what, how uh, this involves the city of Sodom, Sodom and Lot. Because you recall that when uh, they, the land was, they were progressing and all their sheep and cattle were growing, uh, they had so many cattle that they couldn't all stay together. So Abram said to Lot, his nephew, you choose left, I'll go right. You choose right, I'll go left. Now, we can't stay together. We need more space to move our sheep and crops out. So they, they did. And a Lot chose to go to Sodom. And he settled the plains of Sodom. So when this battle takes place, Lot is, arrested, uh, is taken into captivity along with their children and all their belongings, etc. So he's caught up into this. Well, this was, this was a massive force of, uh, for the ancient world of people and military, and it was a big fight. So Abraham only has 318 men. So he decides to do a rescue attempt. And part of this chapter is explaining the very ingenious, it's amazing how God gives so much good military strategy to these early patriarchs. They always very, kind of outsmart people. And he managed over, it was like actually a huge distance of space. They chase them, they, they rout them, they basically divide the men up and they, they surprise them and they think it's a much bigger group than it is and they 
eventually panic and flee, and they strew all of the belongings for 30 miles. So Abram is able to recollect all of the stuff from all of these battles. So it's a big, big victory for, for Abram. In many ways, it's like this is like another day of conflict in the Middle East. But then something really odd happens, and the Jews can never forget it. They, they ruminate over this for a thousand years. Because suddenly they, they come back from the spoils, they're, they're having this amazing experience of recapturing and restoring a lot to his family, etc. When suddenly this man named Melchizedek comes up out of the blue in verse 18. Melchizedek has never been mentioned up to this point. He's never mentioned again except in the hymn we sang or we recited in Psalm 110. Only twice in the Old Testament is he mentioned, in other words. And he comes up and He's not been a part of any of this conflict, and there are at least six things about Melchizedek that astound the Jewish people, and this comes up into all, into all kinds of ways in the mission of the Talmudic writings, you know, Tosefta, et cetera. It's, it's there, a lot of speculation all through their history, both oral and later written about it. But first of all, and of course, Hebrews 7 recounts this for us somewhat, but his name is Melchizedek, Melech and Zedek, king of righteousness. It either means king of righteousness or one who serves the king of righteousness. What is that? It's really powerful. He's also, secondly, he is uh, king of Salem, king of peace. This is a very early reference to Jerusalem. That obviously gets anyone's attention, especially if you're a Jew. So this person is the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, or one who worships king of righteousness. And then the big amazing thing is that he is... Uh, king and priest of God Most High. All right, priest of God Most High. King and priest. That how does that work? As you heard from the Hebrew seven sects, that doesn't. It's not possible in the Hebrew mind, because the priests come from Levi, the kings come from Judah. These can't be resolved in one person. That becomes a very important messianic point, as we'll see as Christ fulfills all of this. And then he emerges with no calling card. Now, in our world, we don't care about this. You know, you meet somebody and shake their hand. My name is Tim Tennant. All right, that will not work in the ancient world. No one cares who Tim Tennant is. They, don't, they still don't care, but <laughs> the ancient world certainly didn't care. But what you would say is, you know, I'm Tim Tennant. I'm the son of so-and-so. I'm the son of so-and-so. I'm the son of so-and-so who... My grandfather fought this great battle and did this great thing. Oh, now we know who you are. You see, everyone is connected. There's no personal autonomy in the modern post-enlightenment sense in the ancient world. And so you are who you are because of who you're from and who your mother and father are and all of that. That's very crucial to your identity. So for someone to show up, they have no idea who his mother and father is. They don't know when he was born. They don't know when he died. They know nothing about him. All right, that, that becomes a huge factor in the mind of the Jewish people. Who is this guy who just kind of shows up from nowhere? No genealogy, nothing. Finally, or fifthly, he then breaks out bread and wine and serves bread and wine to Abram. Now, of course, bread and wine uh, this is, of course, the staple of life. That's the basic point. But it comes, becomes, of course, the kernel of the Passover. It becomes the kernel of the Eucharist. There's a very, very powerful images being sent forth that's a lot to reflect on. 
Melchizedek could have been a seven-part series, but I, I spared you on that, okay? I'm known for these series that never end, so this, we're moving along here. Um, and then finally, sixthly, he not only blesses Abraham, but then Abraham tithes 10% of all the spoils to him, all right? Now that is, as you know, in the ancient world, you, you, the tradition was you tie 10% to the king, all right? You, the lesser always ties to the greater. So that becomes a really point of mystery. Why would Abram give this man 10% of everything? And eventually we know from the contact with Barak, king of Sodom, who I think is one of the first jokes in the Bible, who comes to Abram and says, um, Abram, you know, uh, you keep all the goods. Just, just give me the, uh, the, the, the women and children and uh, my back, and we'll, we'll all be friends. And Abram, of course, doesn't owe Bera anything, but Abram refused to re accept anything. He gives everything back. He says, because if I keep one thong of your sandal, someday you'll say, I helped make Abram rich. Right, we often count Genesis 22 as the place that really tests Abram's faith, which is the next part of this series. But in fact, this is the early lane of the tracks. Here we see already... We don't emphasize this text enough how Abram shows very early on his absolute trust in God's promises. Remarkable, remarkable passage. So this memory uh, stays with Jewish people for a thousand years. Finally, David writes this uh, amazing psalm in Psalm 110, this coronation psalm, perhaps preparing for his own son's uh, coronation, uh, coronation as king, Solomon. But you know, it, it becomes a messianic sum of hope, of course, because the kingship always foreshadows that. We see later that David, of course, becomes the kingly connection to the Messiah. So he says in that text, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, isn't that an amazing statement? Who's ever heard of the order of Melchizedek? This is something that David articulates here in Psalm 110. It's very, very powerful. And eventually, uh, we get another glimpse of this in Zechariah 6, which, of course, David wasn't, wouldn't be aware of at that point. But later on, because Zechariah has another prophecy about the branch, the Messiah called Branch will come, and he will bring a harmony in the kingship and the priesthood, and they'll be united into one Messiah. All right, so there's all this kind of hopes unfolding about what is going to happen when Christ comes. So we get to, to uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews makes a great, great point of all of this. And me, of course, Hebrews wants to point out that there are a number of reasons why Melchizedek becomes a very crucial figure for us as Christians. This is brought over into the Hebrews 7 account. First of all, he says... The Melchizedek priesthood is permanent, right? Remember the priest, just like today, we take Eucharist, we give Eucharist. We need forgiveness of sins like everybody else. The priest always sacrificed for their own sins, then for the sins of others. So there's this amazing sense where with Melchizedek, something different has happened because uh, David says in verse 4 of Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The priesthood, people lived and died, lived and died, passed on. This is a, an eternal priesthood. That is truly remarkable. Now, of course, 
people have speculated that these, you know, because it was a, a theophany or a Christophany and all of that, but that's not the point in my mind. It's not that. It's saying the fact that he has no calling card, no known genealogy, he functions like that. He, lived, he is like that in terms of how he's understood in the, in the Old Covenant. So it's a permanent priesthood. Secondly, Abraham ties to him, not the other way around, so it shows that the lesser is, of course, tied into the greater, and he makes the same point that we made with, Abra with Adam in that the fact that Levi is in the loins of Abraham. So we, we don't have this connectedness. We're, we, we live in a world of autonomy. But, you know, from the Bible, biblical perspective, not only are you sitting here, but all of your descendants are sitting here in you. Now, why is that important? Well, when you have your first appointment as a church and you have 12 people show up, when I, my very first appointment, I was assigned to Nakuchi United Methodist Church. I got there, and my very first Sunday, there were 22 people present. I was so disappointed. I thought, this is my charge, 22 people? And the man in the leader came afterwards and said, oh, pastor, this was a great day. Everyone came out, you know. <laughs> my second week, we were down to 15. So my first church, I started with 15 people. And it never dawned on me that all of my people's descendants were in their loins. I was preaching to thousands. <laughs> Just a little pastoral, you know, it's not in the text. This is on the marginal reading. But the fact that uh, Levi is inside of, of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Uh, they're in, the, the fact that Abraham ties, he's saying essentially Levi ties. That's what the text of, of Hebrews 7 says. And thirdly, of course, the character of the two parties involved. The Levites were sinners. They had to practice life themselves, I said. Melchizedek uh, is considered to be one without any lineage or ancestor, so he has the power of an indestructible life, as it were, and at least in type form. So here we have uh, Melchizedek becomes for us a might say a hermeneutic or an interpretive way of understanding through a lens how Christ comes to us as the high priest. Because this, of course, becomes the problem. Jesus Christ comes from the line of Judah. How can he fulfill all the strands of the Old Testament? So we're claiming, and the Bible does claim, that Christ is both you know, the great uh, uh, fulfillment of the the, 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 uh, the prophetic expectations. He's the king, the great king. He's also the great priest. So the order of Melchizedek becomes the way in which Christ can be both king and priest because it's an order that trumps out and precedes the order of Levi. Now, I believe when I look from our perspective as Protestant Christians, most of us in this room are Protestant Christians, I think we really need to take a breath and look at this again and again in our day. Because if you think about, look at our hymnology, look at the things we sing, look at kind of the sermons and things we talk a lot about, you think, think about it, we mostly focus on Christ and fulfilling the kind of redemptive strand through the cross of Christ. We think of Christ fulfilling the kingly uh, development. All of that is very much central to our hymnology, our sermons, things we talk about. We have not emphasized enough the priesthood of Christ, Christ as our high priest. And so my call today to you is to not forget this. Because one of the 
one of the great hallmarks of the Reformation, which I think has been eroded in our day, at least to understand it properly, is the idea that Jesus, that we are the priesthood of all believers. I'm going to come back to what that means. But when that was articulated in the Reformation time, the point of it was not to unleash us out into the world as we're all priests, I think, as it's sometimes taken to be. The point of it is to say that, no, we are all, in a sense, in Christ, who is the high priest. And because we are in Christ, we share in his priesthood. In that sense, there's a priest of all believers. But if you take away the priesthood of Christ out of this equation, essentially, or at least mentally, take it out of the equation, and we just declare to our people, we're all priests, we're all the priesthood of all believers, kind of a disconnected doctrine, which I think has basically happened, then you end up with three casualties that I've observed in the contemporary church. And maybe you have too. And by the way, this is not at all true of all contemporary churches. There's some great exceptions to this, but this is just a general observation that I've observed around the country. One, what I call cavalier casualness. And this is where we essentially take the priest of all believers and we manage to turn it into what I would call God is my pal. All right? God my buddy. All right? There's a danger in that because it actually turns us into kind of a, we enter into God's presence lightly. There's a very, very big difference between Wesley, as we sang this morning, proclaiming, bold I approach the throne of God. Uh, it says, in Christ. And the whole point of that phrase is that we approach that in Christ, we can approach the throne of God boldly. So walking in God's presence with like a, I mean, just to make the caricature complete, uh, a cup of coffee in one hand and a donut in the other, it, it sends a very, very poor message about what it means to go into God's presence. So a person who has a cup of coffee in their hand and a donut in their hand and walking into church, this is not actually underscoring the way I think we intend it to be, you know, we can boldly go in God's presence. That's not what is meant by boldness. Because what we don't want to say is that coming into God's presence is no big deal. I want to say that coming to God's presence is a big deal. It's always a big deal. And our bodies must reflect that. I mean, in some ways, the liturgical churches you know, save you for a while at least because it can occasionally bring you back to certain kinds of postures and movements. But that's not the point, not a liturgy or non-liturgy. It's about the way we come into God's presence and what we message out as future pastors of the church, that we are coming for God with boldness through repentance and confession in Christ and hiding ourselves in Christ. Now, I get to travel a lot in my role, and I travel around the country. When I'm here, I travel as well. And one thing I've observed is that a lot of contemporary churches, not all, there's some beautiful exceptions to this, please hear me, but many, many of our contemporary churches have dropped out prayers of confession from the order of service. Now tell me, why would contemporary Christians need to confess less than like the traditional ones? I mean, aren't we all kind of equal opportunity confessors? In this one place where the, the, you know, the cross, it's level at the foot of the cross, why would we ever think that somehow or another 
repentance and confession should be taken out because it's not really user-friendly or not really, uh, you know, won't be attractive to people. All those are really poor instincts. There's ways to have very great, engaging contemporary services that are wonderful, but also retain kind of the basic facts of Christian faith, which we come before God in repentance and faith. And confession is very, very good for the soul. I spend most of my time traveling around apologizing to people. It's part of my job. In my job description, regularly apologize. And it's actually good, good for me. I, I deserve it. Um, you know, also, I think the second uh, casualty is what I call presumptuous entitlement. Uh, I think that's happened in the, in the, I'm just trying to think, what's happened with the erosion of the priesthood of Christ? What how it happens is, it, another problem is it gets into a point where we actually begin to slowly put God in the dock. And what happens is we have had in our own day what I'll call the loss of a theodicy. Okay, a theodicy is our explanation for why bad things happen in the world. So it was always quite securely, I mean, even though it's a mystery, at least it was securely rooted in the basic point that Christ alone is the only truly innocent sufferer. And Christ responds to the world of suffering by taking it on in the cross of Christ. And through his priesthood, he presents us before God as those who've been reconciled to God through his sacrifice. In other words, Christ is both the, the sacrificed and the priest. He's both the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. Well, that's a very important theology to have in our, our minds and our hearts. Today, I think we've accepted basically the idea that God must explain himself to our satisfaction when things don't work right in the world, when things happen in our family or our society that don't seem right. God better explain himself or we're going to walk. That, that, that motif is there. I mean, this is not, you know, I'm not saying it's here, I'm not saying it's with you. I'm just saying this is definitely there in the church, the people of God. That, and somehow we've kind of agreed kind of tacitly with the world, unbelieving world that God is a little bit cruel and unjust and silent in the face of suffering. And we don't have an answer for it because we disconnected our work and our proclamation from what Christ has done on the cross in terms of high priest. And finally, the third uh, casualty is we turned the pastorate as we know it, using the word pastors, into a class of professional religious functionaries. Now, they've done some amazing surveys, I think, particularly Christopher Smith's work in doing surveying young people today. He surveyed, I think it's the most extensive survey of teenagers in America. And he asked the question, kind of in the backwards, what is the religion or the religious faith content of teenagers today? And what he determined, he called it the uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, I won't go into all the reasons why that he argues this, but he says the dominant religion in America today is moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, what he argues, I think quite effectively, is that the effect of this is that in this kind of world we live in, <coughs> the, we now have an acceptable role in society to do certain religious functions. So even a fair, except for the atheist, perhaps, a certain kind of religious overview in the world where if somebody gets married, 
you know, uh, or even the same-sex marriage things, you know, it's really helpful to bring in a pastor because it makes the whole thing seem legitimate. Or you, uh, when someone dies, you know, somebody has to say something nice at that time, you know, bring in the pastor and he, can, or he, he or she can say things that make people feel better because nobody wants to do things like that. So we end up being forced into kind of this new world of religious functionaries who do religious things that even a secular society is okay with. All right? Now, all of that seems to me to be a, a situation that makes obsolete what it actually means for us to be pastors and church leaders because we are not the recreation of the Jewish priesthood that goes and does these, you know, they come in and sacrifice certain things, they cut up the animals, they do this, that, and the other, and that, that's what they do, and only they can do it. That is not, like, we're not a new class of those kind of people. What Hebrews tells us is, in fact, Christ fulfilled all of that. He is the high priest. He's already gone into the Holy of Holies. He's already made the final sacrifice. And so our role is a very, very different kind of role as we serve as the proclaimers of the gospel the service of God, reflecting Christ's priesthood and service in the world, fair enough. I think this is something we have to be very, very careful about. So, brothers and sisters, I believe that this passage of Melchizedek will hopefully inspire us to think again about the importance of Christ being our high priest, the one who represents us before God the one who allows us to be in Christ, just as we were once in Adam, and we're now in Christ as second Adam. We're also in Christ as the great high priest who brings us in the presence of God. And it's because of our being in Christ, and I argue only because we're in Christ, that we can then go boldly into God's presence with joy. That's the basis of it, who Christ is according to the order of of Melchizedek. Let us pray. We thank you, Almighty God, that you are the great high priest who has passed through the heavens and who represents us before the living God. Lord, we pray you would rekindle and refresh and renew this great truth in our lives and our ministries of what an awesome and glorious thing it is to be in the presence of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.